Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. British novelist Nicholas Mosley in his 2006 book Experience in Religion. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I've got two very talented and thinking men for you to meet. One a poet and novelist, the other a theologian and biographer. Writers of tremendous warmth, originality and opinion. Louis de Bernier unpacks the nature of grief and loss as played out in his touching new book, The Dust That Falls From Dreams. And Is God Dead in the West? Rupert Short defends Christianity and faith in God. This is a show about love, war and the great literatures of hope. But first, poet and novelist Louis de Bernier at the West Cork Literary Festival. I am Louis de Bernier, British writer and poet. I'm wafting around the world promoting a novel which um, came out a year ago and is now in paperback uh, called The Dust That Falls From Dreams, which was based on something that happened in my family, like the death of my grandmother's fiancé in 1915. I've constructed a fiction on top of this event. So although it, it's, it's not a family history, and I've told as many lies as I possibly can, the, the origin of it, oddly enough, was finding out that my grandfather had died at the age of 96 in the Rocky Mountains in Canada when we thought he'd been dead for 30 years. Louis, what is it about you in terms of love and romance? You write a lot about it. Are you still wondering and asking questions about it? I, th- I think that, that love is really what keeps us going. It's, it's why, in a sense, why we're here. I'm not just interested in romantic love, though. I'm interested in every kind of love. So you, human beings have a unique capacity to, to love in all sorts of different ways. So we love our dogs and our cats and our sisters and our you know, sons and daughters, our cousins and our friends. And, I, and I'm interested in all these kinds of love. I try not to privilege romantic love because that's actually the most ephemeral one of all. Grief can be, in ways, it can have a very profound effect and really situate your love and that sense of loss through it all, can't it? It can have the effect of wounding you so deeply that you think you probably won't be able to pick yourself back up again. But of course, as time goes by, you know, a miracle can happen. Mm. You know, that that, that Leonard Cohen song, Waiting for the Miracle, you know, the miracle does sometimes happen and the grief turns out to be something that you learned from. Mm. 
it can be quite life affirming as well being so aware of your of your loss and and how you loved whether it's a parent a child a friend it can also make you become very aware of what you have to live for well yes a good example is when when my mother died i realized i had to make the most of my father it's as simple as that and if you've um, had say a romantic relationship that failed it can become a means of doing the next one better that's why i try to try and keep a positive gloss on it can we talk about your latest novel the dust of falls from dreams what was the big question you were asking yourself i was asking myself what was that period really like i had to make a massive effort of empathy to put put myself back say in 1914 or 1920 but writers have to do this all the time you're you're reimagining the past hoping hoping that you're reimagining it accurately as long as everybody else agrees that you've succeeded then in a sense you have even even if um you did get it a bit wrong do you think there was a tremendous sense of suffering collective suffering from world war 1 and onwards that everybody was carrying trauma in some way that no family was untouched by it that there was this collective shadow yeah absolutely no family was was untouched by it and it's the reason for example why there was a tremendous resurgence of interest in spiritualism in the 1920s because everyone was trying to get in touch with their dead boys mm. you know as the decades went by spiritualism died back mm. but it was a major phenomenon of the 20s you know people doing you know t- table turning and Ouija boards and automatic writing all that sort of thing people wrote books about conversations they'd had with their dead boys and some of them were scientists like Sir Oliver Lodge and i i think um the trauma unfortunately continues to this day and I, I can specifically in my family one of my grandfathers crashed a sop with camel and smashed his legs up and he was in pain all his life he was also at gallipoli and got three bullets and of course later in his life he couldn't take the pain anymore and he blew his head off with a shotgun so that traumatized my mother and my mother's trauma sort of got almost passed on to us and on the other side of the family my grandmother's fiance was killed in 1915 and she never got over it you know she married my grandfather in 1918 but the marriage didn't work because she couldn't get over that loss and so my grandfather left which means my father grew up not knowing how to be a father because he didn't have one now that i'm a father i've i've had to sort of learn from scratch myself so all this goes back to 1915 and and it's more than 100 years ago. You used your grandmother's letters in de- in developing the story and her mm. diaries. Can you tell me about that because as a writer you use a lot of different resources and different types of research but this is your own family history. So it must have put a different spin on things, did it? Because it's so very intimate. Well, what what I did was take original materials and 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 add or take away. So I do have my grandmother's um, autograph books which she kept when she was a nurse in the hospital the soldiers used to draw cartoons or write poems for the nurses and each nurse had their own scrap book i've got my grandmother's i've got i've got her fiance's diaries from the front which obviously get more and more scruffy as as the weeks go by until you can hardly read them and then he's dead my grandmother wrote down extracts from all his love letters which i have you know and i simply transcribed them there was so much of it i i didn't add or take away to those really but my editor made me take quite a lot of it out because it got so much sort of romantic heavy duty stuff that it slightly unbalanced the narrative 
But it, did it make you think or look back at your grandmother in a different way? Did you see her in a different light? Do you, do you think you have a greater sense of compassion for her and what she went through? Well, my grandmother became very religious, which I think was um, a direct consequence of, you know, needing that kind of support to get herself through through the war and so on. I, I lost my faith when I was 18, but I, I very, very much understand where she's coming from. My father feels the same way, that he couldn't have got through the Second World War without his faith. There's a whole body of research to say that the more suffering you have in your life, the more you will search for a God in your life. Do you agree with that? It's, have you seen it in your own life? It's, it's probably true, but in my, in my case, all the suffering and torment and evil in the world has put me off God in a big way um, because I sort of feel he's not doing his job. But other people, it has the opposite effect. For example, there's a man in my village who lost several children shortly after birth. And I said to him, Eddie, how come you've managed to keep your faith through all this? And he just said, well, it was the faith that got me through it. But, but for me, it works the other way around. That the more, the more evil I see, the more I don't like God. Well, you can't predict these things. Sure, you can't. <laughs> no, you certainly can't, no. So in the writing, did you go into military museums? Did you go into, like, regimental histories as well? Because you're piecing together quite a story. Yes, I, I already knew a lot about yeah. the First World War in the air. Mm. Both my grandfathers were airmen. As a little boy, I was very obsessed with uh, biplanes and Vickers machine guns and interrupter gear and all that kind of thing. So I already knew a lot about that. And I, I used the RAF Museum in Hendon in North London quite a lot. And there are, there are quite a lot of very good written accounts, too, which, which uh, you, you can find just by trawling second-hand bookshops. Presumably, though, very harrowing. Not always. Okay. Not always. Yeah. Because, for example, it, it was tremendously good fun flying those planes. And if they went out on a mission and didn't encounter the enemy, they just they just looped the loop and had fun in the clouds, you know. So it, it, it wasn't all traumatic. And certainly in the Royal Flying Corps, they got over it by having regular binges, which entailed sort of even smashing the furniture up. And But because there were so many ruined French houses, they just went and got more furniture. So they'd have a binge if somebody was killed. They'd have a binge if somebody had a victory. They'd have a binge if, when, when somebody new turned up, etc., etc. Were there many letters or correspondences that you read about soldiers or pilots having questions on what they were doing there? What were they fighting for? Whose war was it? And were they really heroes? Does, does that come up in the records? In Britain, certainly, we have a, we, I think we've developed a warped view of how people felt because of reading too much Seafried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. Mm-hmm. And so their, their somewhat jaundiced attitude has become, um, you know, the conventional wisdom about it being a futile war. And I, I, I don't believe that most people actually did think that way. I know my grandfather didn't, the one who was smashed, who smashed up his legs. He, he actually thought it was worth it. Mm-hmm. The point being that the Kaiser had invaded France through two neutral countries, with one of whom the British had a treaty of um, to guarantee their neutrality. We actually had no choice. And the Kaiser's plan to knock out France and then knock out Russia was identical to Hitler's plan. All that the Kaiser was was Adolf Hitler without, without the persecution of Jews. And I, I think everybody understood at the time that unless you um, stood up to the Kaiser, that would be the end of freedom in Europe. When you look at your family history and your family tree, and I know when we were talking earlier, you mentioned to me you're just back from Sri Lanka, where your mother worked as an intelligence operative in World War II. 
We're in a year of commemoration. We're looking at 1916 here in Ireland. We're commemorating the heroism of the Battle of the Somme, but also the tragic loss of life. How do you look at all of that and make shape of that, given the fact that your family have been involved in World War One and World War Two, and that you grew up on the memories of all of this? For some reason in Britain, we're getting more and more affected by the past. Um, people are, mo- are more... Um, upset about the casualties of the First World War that now than they were when I was young. It's as though we've become more sensitive and have developed a greater sense of tragedy. And I, th- I think that's quite right, because as you said earlier, there isn't one, there isn't one family in, in Britain, I think, or in, or in Ireland, that hasn't been affected by the First World War. W- when it comes to our imperial past, my attitude is a little bit unconventional, I think. Uh, what I strongly resent about the Empire is that it killed so many of my family. So one of my great uncles died of dysentery in South Africa. Another one was killed in an ambush in South Africa. Another one died of typhoid in India. If you walk around the graveyards in Sri Lanka, there's hardly a white man who got older than 44. A lot of them died in their 20s. I came across a grave with five children who died of yellow fever. And I thought, it really, it can't possibly have been worth it. So, you know, my, my, my grudge against the empire would be different from somebody who's an African or whatever, but, but uh, I do think that um, somehow we, we, we got things out of proportion. Just wondering, though, if war craves sacrifice, where is our responsibility today when we look at what's happening across the world, when we look at ISIS, when we look at the terrible bombings uh, and atrocities in France and further field, when we look at the Syrian crisis? Do you think we've learned anything? We haven't learned well enough. Mm. We've known, for example, ever since the 19th century that Afghanistan is uncontrollable. I had a great uncle there and my grandfather there, and what they did was bribe the tribal chieftains to behave themselves. That's what the Pakistanis are still doing. They're bribing. We've always failed to dominate that region. It's always been completely pointless. One of the reasons why um, in Britain you've got the rise of charities like Hope for Heroes is our our understanding that we're we're sending people off to die in in unwinnable wars. And it's really, really unfair. As a poet, Mm. not just as a novelist, do you think with a poetic lens and things that adds a, a greater urgency to what you're writing about maybe or does it help you reflect more and unpack whether it's the nature of suffering, the lessons to be learned in war, the impact of war on families, ordinary people's lives. Does it maybe, as a poet, how you and how that lends into your novels, do you think that it changes things in some way, gives you a different perspective? Well, the ancient Greeks, whenever they wanted to talk about moral authority, would always talk about the poets and philosophers. So poets were sort of considered to be on a par with philosophers. And I'm not sure I would go that far. I, I, I don't want to claim any sort of special status just because I write poetry. But what, what poetry does is condense ideas and feelings in, in such a way that they have far more emotional and moral force than they would if they were prose. And I suppose that, that would be the one thing I would say would be coming out of writing poetry that's different from doing it any other way. But I, I, I don't want to pretend to be um, some kind of sage. Do you think the reader's expectation is different, though? in terms of when a poet looks at war as distinct from a novelist? Do you think that there's an expectation of some level of truth coming from a poet or something? Not really, no. I, I, th- I think that what, what the reader is looking for is some sort of special perception of it that's perhaps original or, or you know, not, not the same old stale stuff. 
Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I, so I don't really want to privilege poets over any other kind of writer, although, although, although in, in my heart, that's how I do feel. I do think poetry is, is you know, is, is the best. I can't justify it philosophically. You said that you've been writing of Love and Desire, your latest collection, yeah. for nearly 40 years in terms of from infatuation to heartbreak to disillusionment in love. You've, you cover a whole lifetime's experience of love. So how does a poet reflect on that? Well, you know, who was it who said that poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility? I can't remember who said that, but it, there's a lot of that in there. Yeah. It's when you, you, can, you can look back on something that happened 30 years ago that was practically drove you to suicide. And with the perspective of 30 years, you've got a, a sense of what it meant, and you can be even a humorous about it. So um, a lot of those poems are, are quite recent, and so they, they still have a sort of raw rawness about them, uh, but one in particular I can think of which is pretty raw. And the other thing is, I'm incredibly easily influenced by other poets. So, so if I read a collection of Persian poetry, I will, for the next couple of weeks, be writing fake Persian poems. <laughs> so that, 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 that's why, you know, some of those poems are a little bit weird because they read as though they were written by some, you know, medieval Persian. I, I'm not ashamed of that. I, I, I feel that with poetry in particular, you only get out what you put in. But has it helped you resolve anything by writing this collection? Or do you think whether that question matters or not, do you have to resolve anything by writing a poetry collection? I don't think it matters. I mean, it, it might help you solve some things, but you shouldn't think of poetry or literature as a form of psychotherapy. Mm. That's not what it is. Mm. It's about developing deeper ways of seeing the world. It sometimes does have a, a cathartic effect or, or a therapeutic effect, but I don't think that's the purpose of it. Quite often, you know, you're just looking back on things and having a smile about what an idiot you used to be. I suppose that it, 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 so to, to that, po- that point, it, it, it can be about self-knowledge too. Yes, it can be. I read somewhere uh, that you said recently that I'm a pessimist, but I travel hopefully. And I think I kind of got it, but I was hoping that you'd explain it fully to me. Well, one thing I was going to say was that love is a journey, not a destination, as indeed life is. If you ever feel that you've arrived, then you're basically dead. He who is not busy being born is busy dying. I strongly believe that. So so it it is all about the journey. Mm. And like a journey, you can't control it. Sure, you can't. No, you can't. No, no, sometimes the bus doesn't arrive Mm. or you get on the wrong bus. (laughs) (laughs) I, I am a pessimist, and I think that follows directly from having lost my religious faith. You know, if you have a religious faith, and it's ob- obviously life has a meaning, obviously you have a way of getting through your difficulties. You have invis- invisible support, as they say. If you, if you don't have that, you would be inclined to become a pessimist because you no longer believe in some sort of cosmic plan which is going in the right direction. It, so it, you don't think you can be a happy atheist, do you not? Oh, no, you can be a happy atheist. But the point about being a pessimist is that it actually opens up greater opportunities for happiness because you're so often not disappointed. So you've lowered the bar, have you? You've lowered the bar. You have lowered the bar. You're much more likely to be happy, I think, if your expectations aren't so high. When you say that when you've lost your faith, is it that you've fallen out of love but maybe still believe? Or is it that you just don't believe at all? Because they're two entirely different things. I, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I think it's intellectually arrogant to claim things that you can't know. I sometimes suspect that whatever is the ultimate metaphysical truth, we're not actually supposed to know it. Okay. It's supposed to be mysterious yeah. and unknowable. Could you throw me some lines of poetry, Louis? 
I only have one of my poems off by heart, which is because like, it came to me when I was driving the car. It's not published yet. I couldn't write it down, so I had to memorize it. And it went, The old man is content. The young are singing his songs. The songs composed in his far-off, passionate days. The girls bring flowers. The boys shake hands and smile. The old man is content. He's glad they have gone, those far-off, passionate days. He pities the young, the young who are singing his songs. British poet Louis de Bernier talking to me this summer at the West Cork Literary Festival. The Dust That Falls From Dreams and Of Love and Desire, Louis' latest collection of poetry, is published by Harville Secker and is available in hardback and ebook for in around 10 euros. Handy reading for a quick trip away or a few quiet moments. Welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Is religion merely a private matter, or do we need more robust and open dialogue? In his latest offering, God is No Thing, Rupert Short, the religious editor of the Times Literary Supplement, argues, If you are in two minds about religion, are sure that you should reject it, then you should naturally be true to yourself. Christians who question this may need reminding that loving your neighbour partly entails having respect for his or her opinions. The other is that Christianity gets dismissed too readily in the West today. The mockers and doubters are well advised to take a fresh look at the case for the defence, or at least to become better informed about what they were saying no to. Rupert goes on to state that so much poo-pooing of Christianity in our times rests on a series of parodies. Science is an exceptionally important part of human civilization, but its remit is not all-encompassing. On the contrary, scientism is a sitting duck. Strong words indeed. 
Well, this week, I got a hold of the very brave Rupert and teased out some of the ideas he puts forward in God is No Thing, Coherent Christianity, published by Hearst Publishing. I'm Rupert Short. I'm religion editor of the Times Literary Supplement in London. I'm in a strange little class of one in being a biographer of both a pope and an Archbishop of Canterbury, that's to say Joseph Ratzinger and uh, Rowan Williams. I don't think anybody else has ever done that. It's because I'm a little bit of a, a mongrel in terms of background. I, I'm a, a Catholic with a, an Anglican mother. What you're trying to say roughly in translation there is, Rupert, you're either nuts or unbelievably courageous. Is that it? <laughs> well, that's not really for me to say, but uh, I was very interested in, in, in both men. Despite their different backgrounds, respectively, the two most distinguished occupants of their respective offices from an intellectual point of view in about a thousand years. I might start off on the theme of courage and belief and throw you a quote from the great Thomas Aquinas, if that's okay, Rupert. Aquinas once said, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. Not entirely, although I think there is a, there's an important insight there. I think in, in framing a reply, I would draw on St. Thomas himself to, to an extent. This is a very complicated area, and to get a map and compass through this boggy terrain, I think it's absolutely crucial to hold two factors in mind. The first is that if the claims of Christianity are true... Christianity or or indeed Judaism or or Islam, if they're true, then God immeasurably transcends anything that we can grasp with our own human categories. The other consideration, which I think balances the first, is that we are nevertheless endowed with reason, advanced powers of conceptual thought. If you believe in God, you believe that these capacities are endowed by God. And I think St. Thomas would have been among the first to say, look, there are some things that I can only share with another believer fully. And I think I, St. Thomas, would argue that the world poses a question which the world itself cannot answer. And that's when the whole business of God comes in. Do you think in some way Christianity has been dismissed in the West and that maybe we need to reevaluate and re-engage and possibly look at what we failed to understand about Christianity and give it a better hearing, maybe? Oh, very much so on, on all sorts of levels, from, from the social and political to the intellectual. I mean, just thinking in terms of the intellectual side, there's been a, I was going to say, unprecedentedly strong spate of anti-Christian attacks, bestsellers of the past decade or so. That, that's not quite true because there's nothing especially original about the arguments of somebody like Richard Dawkins. In some ways, that it's just a, a rehash of arguments that were expressed a lot, let's say, between the wars and which many people would say were dealt with to the satisfaction of a, of a lot of thoughtful people at that time. So there, there is a strain of contempt for Christianity, a sort of a, a, overt contempt among some. But then there's a much larger body of opinion, I think, which isn't especially concerned with really vehement attacks, but which just considers religion in general and Christianity in particular to be rather weird. And um, somebody 
from Fleet Street with no particular axe to grind, India Knight, she wrote a column in the Sunday Times at Easter and said, one of the more unattractive aspects of 21st century life is the way it is considered acceptable to sneer slightly at practicing Christians. It's never a great big snarling sneer, unless you're Richard Dawkins or one of his disciples, because that whole scene is, of course, a religion in itself and quite a creepy one. But it's an eye roll, a stifled smirk, a sort of bafflement at the idea that someone who is apparently like us, rather than glaringly besmocked and besandled, should choose to spend Sunday morning celebrating the intangible. Now, you bring up two very smart writers, Colm Tobin and Philip Pullman. You mentioned the Testament of Mary and the good man Jesus. And you say that or you argue that these writings are totally misconceived. Can you elaborate on that? I particularly found the Testament of Mary an astonishingly good read and very thought provoking and very insightful. Yes. In point of fact, I I was much more critical of Philip Pullman than I was of Colm Tobin. Well, I admire both writers very much. They've got tremendous um, imaginations. I just think that Philip Pullman in particular has a um, big blind spot about Christianity. Now, in a book like mine, I'm dealing with, relatively briefly, but I hope not superficially, with a range of subjects from philosophy to psychology to spirituality to uh, intellectual history and exposition of, of the Bible. So, in terms of what Pullman says in his book, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, I think he's just much too sceptical about the reliability of the gospel accounts. His book is based actually on a a very old-fashioned idea that the gospels don't really stack up historically, that there's a, a historical kernel about an honest Jewish rabbi who went around telling people to, to love one another and who mysteriously got executed for, for that most innocuous of activities. And that somehow, once the message of Jesus had been transplanted from its Jewish soil and moved into the soil of a Hellenistic culture, all of a sudden a Jewish rabbi gets turned into the saviour of the world. Now, whatever the truth or otherwise of Christianity, what I am saying is that just as, as a matter of history, that, that that is not a reliable interpretation. It, it, it was once a kind of liberal orthodoxy. In terms of Colum Tobin, I think that there is also in his work, very interesting though it is, a tendency to be rather sceptical of the gospel material. I am more confident than Colum Tobin is that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke in particular, provide a historically reliable account, albeit with plenty of of very interesting reflection, but basically historically accurate account of who Jesus was and what he stood for. And that John's gospel, although it's very different in register, very elaborate in many ways, very philosophically rich, that it, it nevertheless represents, if you like, an oak in comparison with the the acorn of the first three gospels so it's not it's not a distortion it's more of a development but there are questions to be asked and very relevant questions to be asked too on the reliability of the new testament and that within all of that the storytelling aspects whether things stack up or not there are i mean i don't think that um 
you can take absolutely everything in the New Testament at, at face value. I, I've just been very careful to say that there's an awful lot of reflection. So in other words, the material is crafted so as to reinforce a message. The Gospels were written after the resurrection. They're written from the standpoint of, of resurrection faith. So then they're, they're not, you know, neutral newspaper reports. They're not biographies in our sense of the word. They are carefully crafted works designed to, to bear out the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son or, or the, the Word of God. There are mistakes of fact in the Gospels. Mark's Gospel famously begins with a, a misquotation from the um, Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. John's Gospel, in fact, puts the um, crucifixion at, at a different time from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that's why I think I would take um, more of a Catholic view of the Bible and say that it, it needs to be interpreted more against the background of a, of a tradition. And it's more, I think, very conservative Protestants who might have, um, have a problem with the, the fact that the New Testament contains many loose ends. Now, one of the questions you pose in the book is whether it's possible that we can preserve what is best in Christianity without abandoning belief in God. That's a very tough one. Where do you think things are going? Well, I think that we're good at asking sort of instrumental questions in our culture about um, individual rights, privacy and so forth. But we're, we're a little bit leery about the bigger questions of, of meaning and truth and how to live the, the, the good life more widely. Now, the churches, of course, Ireland in particular, but, but also I'd say the, the, the UK to an extent, and certainly many other European countries, come with baggage. I mean, Christians have been very authoritarian in the past, and I feel very relieved as a, as a more liberal-minded person myself that the churches are a bit more humble and, and self-critical now than they were. That I, I hope you can take for granted. What I worry about is that we, in the process of jettisoning some of the admittedly less attractive features of Christian life in the past, that we might throw away the treasure that the church is a vessel of as well. And in my book, I I draw on, or rather discuss, what I see as as good and bad models of of secularism. This is a a distinction drawn by by Rowan Williams um, when he was Archbishop of Canterbury, but I I think it could apply very well throughout the Christian world. And he wants to differentiate between what he calls procedural secularism, which is a, a good model, and programmatic secularism, which he sees as a bad model. Now, procedural secularism, that's the good model, grants no special privileges to any particular religious grouping, but it denies that faith is merely a matter of private conviction. Rowan Williams sees programmatic secularism, on the other hand, in a far less positive light, because it insists on a quote-unquote neutral public arena and hives religion off into a purely private domain. So his recipe for, for harmony is what he calls interactive pluralism, 
which encourages robust dialogue among faith communities and between them and the state. But not all faith-based leaders are in, as enlightened as Rowan Williams. You quote an interview he did with Melvin Bragg. I'd just like to quote them. He said, God is first and foremost that depth around all things and beyond, all things into which when I pray I try to sink. Very much a mystery, but also very much a presence, very much a person. That's extraordinarily beautiful, but possibly we have so many different pictures of a God or what God is, and he doesn't seem that human. Well, the genius of, of Christianity is that it talks very much of, of the human face of, of God. I think there are other traditions that, that emphasize the majesty of God so much that maybe other aspects of God's nature can get lost. And I, I go back to the, the title of my book, God is No Thing. So, so much um, follows from that. We need to think of the whole idea of non-competition. If you and I are in a room together and then we walk out of the room, there may be less of us, but there isn't more of God. Now, in the New Testament, which I would maintain is quite an anti-religious collection of books in some ways, we are asked to put aside many, many conventional images of what God is. Have you read the Torah? Yes, indeed, yes. As all students of Christian theology, let alone uh, Jewish theology, I hope would do. And what did you take from it? What I take from it is that there is a gradual refinement of, of vision going on there. I suspect that people who, who enjoyed or who admired the, the work of Philip Pullman or, or Colin Tabeem, one of the things that they might say is that the Bible is an extraordinary collection of, of, of very, very mixed material. Now, now, that is true. And the scriptures are humanly written and developed history riddled with ambiguities and dead ends and, and fresh starts. Nevertheless, for all of that, they are still powerfully challenging calls to, to humanity to, to grow and reform and criticise itself. And I think I, I, I do get that message out of the Torah as well as other parts of the Bible. What you say to people who have found Western Christianity and whether it's the scriptures or how it's practiced, that it's all a little bit joyless and that it's very penitential and it's all about suffering and hardship and endurance and it's all just that little bit miserable and that, that they have slipped into other faith-based systems inadvertently, possibly, because they're looking for a bit more positives in life. Well, I would say in response to that, two things above all. One is that I totally understand why people are put off church, why they've been hurt by the church. Don't forget that the church at the end of the day is a hospital for sinners and not a hotel for saints by its own definition of itself, let alone by other people's. And the correct definition of a Christian isn't a good person. It's, it's somebody who acknowledges that their failure to be good. The church has always regarded itself both as a human society with many weaknesses and a sometimes terrible history, which will be put right by God in the fullness of time when he, when he separates the, the wheat from the tares. It's also a divine, believed to be a divine society instituted by Christ, which is why even if you feel disillusioned by the church, as I do from time to time, you might feel that it's worth persevering with it. That, that's the first thing that I'd say. The second thing is we need to be 
clear, I think, about what, what Christianity does and doesn't say. Other religious traditions, like Judaism and Islam, the message, in a way, is simpler. It's saying that we, we have received a communication from God, a communication about how, how, how to live well and to get right with God. The Christian claim is, is more radical. It's that we, by dint of Christ's sonship and the promise of adoptive sonship among Christ's followers, that we are offered the chance to be taken up into that eternal exchange of love that is God the Trinity. So I have a little anecdote about a, a priest and a rabbi who visited Auschwitz after the Second World War. And the Jews are well known, of course, for not believing in, a, in original sin and for seeing the Christian doctrine of atonement as something of a histrionic solution to a, to a non-problem, if you like. They don't recognize the cure because they don't recognize the disease. But as they stood at Auschwitz, the rabbi asked the priest how his theology had changed as a result of his knowledge of, of the Holocaust. And the priest turned around and said, I'm very sorry to say that my theology has not changed one little bit as a consequence of the Holocaust. And I think, I think there you see a sign of a sober worldview that reckons that it grapples with, with the full dimensions, the full horror of the, the extent of human self-delusion, even though it offers an enormous prize um, on the far side of suffering and crucifixion. Now, Rupert, I was very interested reading your chapter in relation to spiritual but not religious. You argue that this cliche has entrenched itself as a way of describing those who lay claim to the comfy feelings that accompany religious belief without having to get into the nitty gritty or compromises of organised religion. So it's a bit like dating but not really going the full whack. Within all of that, you get lots of different types of thinkers, particularly new atheists, who would say that we don't really need religion and theology to do our thinking for us because science can explain everything. So we don't need any comfy spiritual stuff. We don't need any theology. It's all in the science and stick to the science. What do you say to all of that? I'd say that that's to reflect a very, very parched understanding of the term truth. I mean, Aristotle, way back before the Christian era in, in his ethics, he said um, it's the mark of a juvenile 